can have your Bibles handy this morning. We'll go to a few passages in just a moment. Today is Resurrection Sunday. We commemorate and celebrate the Sunday after Passover every year, marking the day when Jesus' disciples found the tomb empty. There's a vast number of things that the resurrection of Jesus Christ can teach us. Teach us things about God, about ourselves, about the nature of our salvation and the opportunity that is the life that is to come. And when I speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, I typically do so in reference to one of a few ideas. As a matter of fact, most of the messages that will be preached today uh, will be focusing on one of a few ideas. The first, of course, is the salvation idea, that because Jesus lives, so too can we. What we sang about already this morning in three of these songs, that because he lives, we may live also. Jesus' resurrection proves that he conquered death, and so in that he conquered death, he can grant us that thing that he promised us, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If I can go and, and worship at the bones of Jesus, he cannot give me what he does not have himself. If he is not alive, then how can he give me that life? The second idea that often comes up, and we'll touch on this one toward the end of our time together, is the sanctification idea. That Jesus did not just overcome death, he overcame sin. And so as I am buried with him by baptism into death, as Romans chapter 6 says, I am then raised to walk in newness of life. So I'm called and I'm enabled to live in that newness of life, sin having no more power over me, for I am not in the flesh, but I am in the spirit. And the third idea, which is the one I'd like to pursue a little bit more formally today, is the validation idea. Because Jesus rose from the dead, it proves that he is who he says he is, and that he did what he said he would do, and that he has the Father's approval on his ministry. And this is important. When I say that, you might think, well, Pastor, that's not hard to understand. You already mentioned Jesus raised from the dead. We can't go and we can't worship at his bones because he is not in a tomb. He was seen of the apostles. He has risen from the dead. Uh, so he must be God. And, and while in simplicity we, we say that, yet as it relates to proving that the Father has approved of the Son's ministry, that Jesus is the Savior, that argument actually falls a little bit short. And the reason why is because Jesus is not the only person in the record of history to have risen from the dead. However, there are some things about Jesus' resurrection that are different in kind than the other resurrections that we find in the Scriptures. We actually find nine other accounts of resurrections uh, spoken of in the Scriptures. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24, we learn of Elijah raising the son of the widow of Zarephath. He was sent to a woman uh, who was gathering sticks to glean a final meal before she and her son were to starve during a time of dearth, of time of famine. Elijah blesses uh, them and uh, says that, th that they will be able to continue to eat for the duration of the famine, uh, long story short, and um, his promise for food would sustain them through the dearth came to the pass, and they found their way through that dearth, uh, having been sustained physically, bodily. The scriptures then say, however, that her son grew sick and died. And she was convinced that her son grew sick and died because her sins were being called into account. That was certainly not the case. Elijah responds by stretching himself upon the child three times and raises him from the dead. 
In 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 18 through 37, will be familiar to those of you that have been walking through Sunday school lessons with us. Elisha is staying at the house of a Shunammite woman and her husband. She's been very good to him over the years and to thank her, to bless her for her uh, uh, generosity toward the prophet, he promises that she would have a son, which she does. The boy is later, as he has grown out in the field with his father, when he uh, suddenly collapses, complaining of his head, and he dies in his mother's arms. She goes and finds the prophet Elisha and appeals to him. Elisha then comes to the son who has been dead and he stretches himself upon the child and he raises him from the dead. The third account is a very strange account in 2 Kings 13, verses 20 and 21. Elisha had died and he was buried in a tomb. And the next year, the Moabites had invaded the land and as they were burying the men, they were... um, Uh, In haste, they decided not to bury a certain man, and instead they tossed him into the tomb of Elisha. And when he touched the bones of Elisha, that man came back to life. We read, that's it for the Old Testament. We read then in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus raising the son of the widow of Nain. Verses 11 through 17, Jesus is in Nain when there is a funeral taking place. He had compassion upon the mother the woman whose son had died. And so he approaches and he tells her, weep not. And he tells the young man to arise and the young man arises. Then we learn in Luke chapter 8, verses 41-42, a little bit further into 56, Jesus rising Jairus' daughter. He's a ruler of the synagogue and he comes because his 12-year-old daughter is sick and dying. Jesus is on his way in between that find the, uh, the woman with the issue of blood getting healed. And as he continues on his way, his servants come and say, don't bother the master any longer. Your daughter is dead. And Jesus says, she's not dead. She just sleeps. And he goes and he takes the girl by the hand, tells her to arise, and she does. Then we have John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Lazarus, a good friend of Jesus, the brother of Mary and Martha, had died. They traveled to him. The mourners are there. And Jesus arrives there in great sorrow. He commands the stone to be rolled away from the tomb. And he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Matthew 27, verses 50 to 54. Upon Jesus giving up the ghost, the Bible says that the earth shook, the rocks rent, and the graves opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. And after that resurrection, many came out of their graves and went into Jerusalem and were seen of many. Following Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, in Acts chapter 9, verses 36 to 42, Tabitha, also called in the Greek Dorcas, was a woman full of good works who got sick and who had died. Peter was in another city. However, he was fairly nearby. The Bible tells us he hurries to Joppa where he kneels down and he prays. And he commands Tabitha to arise and she does so. And then finally, Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. Paul is preaching on the first day of the week in Troas and he's in the upper room. The Bible says that he was preaching all night. And a man named Eutychus was sitting in an upper window listening when he fell asleep and he fell out of the window and he died. 
And Paul fell on him and embraced him, and the Bible says that he awoke and ate and talked with them a long while. So it is that we find outside of Jesus Christ nine direct and specific instances of other men raising from the dead in the Bible. And of course, this excludes what the Bible says will happen one day with the resurrection. And there will be two more resurrections, the Bible tells us, to come in the times that are, are to come. A resurrection of the just, and then sometime later, a resurrection of the unjust. And all of this to say that it is not as if Jesus was the only man in history to rise from the dead. So when we say, well, Jesus rose from the dead, therefore he is God, he did rise from the dead and he is God. But there are some unique things about his resurrection that commend to us the reality that Jesus is, in fact, God in flesh. And the first thing that we find is that as it relates to those who were raised from the dead... Jesus is the only one of that group who announced his own resurrection. In John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, the Bible says this, Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? A little bit of context here. When Jesus was talking, as we'll see in just a moment, he was talking about his own, the temple of his body. But the, the, the ones that were listening to him, they were thinking of the temple that Herod had been building up and renovating for quite literally the past uh, uh, 50 years, the past half century of Jewish history. The Bible says in verse 21, But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So it was not until after Jesus had risen from the dead that they realized exactly what Jesus was saying there when he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Not only did he uh, announce his resurrection, but he announced the timetable of his resurrection. We would see a similar thing in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, Jesus says, Doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I may take it, uh, take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. This one more specific to the reality that Jesus Christ says, I am going to take my life again. I'm going to take it back. I'm going to lay it down and I'm going to take it back. Lazarus never foretold of his own resurrection. Save perhaps the resurrection of the last day. The Shunammite woman did not foretell of her son's resurrection. In fact, those who sought out the man of God often hoped for healing only so long as their loved one was alive. And once their loved one had died, many of them had lost hope at that point, only then for the man of God to raise him from the dead. But this Jesus not only foretold of his death, which many people have foretold of their death, it's kind of an inevitable thing, but he also foretold of his resurrection. And not just generally, mind you. Three days, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. The exact timetable, both of his death and of his resurrection. And this is unique in the history of those who rose from the dead. So that while it's not necessarily unique that Jesus did rise from the dead, it is unique that he foretold of his own resurrection. It is unique that he told people that he would rise from the dead. And this is important. See, because that means that he had some insight or that he had some power. And John 10 tells us he had that power. 
A second unique thing about Jesus' resurrection that we do not find in these other accounts of the resurrection is that it happened to the teacher and not to the disciple. This is a very interesting one. Think through this with me. One of the unique things about the other accounts of people raising from the dead is that it was never the man of God that rose from the dead. Isn't that strange? Elijah didn't die, right? He, he was taken to heaven in a whirlwind, so his is a bit of a unique case as it stands. But then as we think of Elisha, he raised the Shunammite son, but you know who didn't rise from the dead? Elisha. His bones stayed in the tomb, so much so, in fact, that another guy was thrown on his bones and that guy rose from the dead, but you know who didn't rise from the dead? Elisha. Peter raised Tabitha from the dead, but you know what? We don't have any record of Peter rising from the dead. Paul raised Eutychus from the dead, but we don't have any record of Paul raising from the dead. These men were given power by God while in the flesh to raise others from the dead, God raising them from the dead, but none had the power in death to raise themselves. And yet this Jesus, who had the power to give life to the widow's son, who had the power to give life to Jairus' daughter, who had the power to give life to Lazarus, also had the power in laying down his own life to take it again. That makes Jesus quite unique among the resurrections that we have recorded in the Bible and in history. And the fact that Jesus claimed he would raise from the dead is essential for another reason also. Jesus claimed he would raise from the dead, but he also made other claims, didn't he? First, that God the Father was in complete agreement with his ministry and with his message. And second, that he and the Father were in fact one. That he was one with the Father. I and my Father are one. So Jesus did not just claim to be a representative of God. Jesus claimed to be God himself. Jesus did not claim the power of the prophet. He claimed the power of the Son of God. And this is interesting as well. Jesus would say both of these things very plainly in his ministry. John chapter 5 Verses 36 and 37, he says, I have a greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. Jesus testifies that he bore witness, or that the Father bore witness of him, that the Father validated his ministry, that the Father was in agreement with his ministry. Now, as it related to his effort toward his own people, toward the Jewish people, this was essential. Because they believed in the God of the Old Testament, or they claimed to believe in the God of the Old Testament. And Jesus came and he said, I am an emissary, I am a representative, and I am in fact that God. Before Abraham was, he said, I am, I was there. And in doing so, he claimed this authority, but he also claimed the fact that he carried the Father's authority. And of the unity between himself and the Father, we read again in John chapter 10, verses 30 to 33, I and my Father are one. And I... Gave you just the last bit of that snippet because the reason why we know exactly what Jesus was saying here is because of the response, the reaction. Verse 31 and following. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you for my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy and because that thou being a man makest thyself 
God. He claimed to be co-equal with the Father. He claimed to be God in flesh. So it is that we find that Jesus claimed this unity with the Father, this direct approval of his ministry by the Father. And these are one of several evidences that we have of the truth of Jesus' claims. From John chapter 5, Jesus gives several proofs, several witnesses. The testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of the works which he did, the vocal testimony of the Father. And yet the Pharisees still asked in John chapter 6, verse 30, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Okay, think through this with me. Jesus had shown signs and wonders, but you know what? There had been men in the past that showed signs and wonders. Jesus reflected this power, but there had been men in the past. What makes Jesus unique? Well, we already talked about the uniqueness as it relates to the resurrection. That's coming. Jesus, of course, had not died and risen from the dead yet here in jo- in early, early in the book of John. But imagine this. The testimony of Jesus Christ. John bears witness. His works bear witness. The Father bears witness. The scriptures themselves, which they claim to believe, bore witness. And we can think that when the Jews ask this question, what sign showest thou that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? We can imagine that that question was disingenuous, that they had closed their eyes to the signs that Jesus had committed while simultaneously asking him to show them a sign. But perhaps not, at least not in every case. Let's just take a moment to put ourselves into the shoes of a skeptical but not disingenuous Jewish leader of that day. You're a Pharisee. You're skeptical. You're confused. Jesus is coming and he's not representing the Old Testament scriptures the way you have understood them. Yet simultaneously, you're not disingenuous. You're open. You're interested. You're willing. Jesus is ministering and he's doing many wonderful works. John, regarded as a prophet, bore witness of him. He was raising people from the dead. And while all of these things were great works, they, again, were not works that no man had ever done. Prophets of times gone by had done so. And perhaps what ticks in my mind is the warnings in the, uh, in the Old Testament scriptures, the warnings in the, 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 the first five books of the Old Testament, the warnings in the law that says if a man comes and he does signs and wonders, but his words are not right, his words do not come to pass, if he's doing signs and wonders and yet his message is not according to the law, then you reject that man. Then you stone that man because he has come as a false prophet. And you're trying to decide, though this man is doing wonderful works, is he a deceiver or is he truly from God? The Pharisees were happy to see Jesus as a prophet. The problem was when he began to contradict the interpretation of the scriptures that they understood. To this type of Pharisee, a Pharisee that was perhaps skeptical but not disingenuous, what they were seeking was an irrefutable sign that the Father approved of this man's ministry. An irrefutable sign. Now, they did get some of those within the scope of his life. When Jesus came out of the water and a dove descended upon him, 
And a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. That was a pretty good sign that Jesus was accepted of the Father. Mount of Transfiguration was only seen by a few. It was a pretty good sign that Jesus was accepted of the Father. And yet, as we think through this scenario, perhaps the Pharisees weren't there on those days. They were looking for that sign. And for this skeptical but not disingenuous Pharisee, is there even such a thing? This is where the resurrection would really come into play. We, in fact, have a sort of insight into this sort of a man in the Acts of the Apostles. Now, by this point, Jesus had already risen from the dead. So that might undermine the point that I'm trying to make a little bit here. But within the scope of the narrative in Acts chapter 5, the apostles were arrested and they were put in prison. And the Bible says that the Lord opened that prison by night and the apostles went back to the temple and they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were again arrested and the Bible says that that night they were brought before the council. And the high priest questioned them and Peter says in Acts chapter 5 verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. And then Peter preaches Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And the council, because of this, claiming blasphemy, sought to have these men killed. But they weren't killed. And the reason why they weren't killed is because there was a singular man, a Pharisee, who we might call skeptical but not disingenuous. And that skeptical but not disingenuous Pharisee was a man named Gamaliel. And we pick up the account in Acts chapter 5, verse 34, where the Bible says this. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commended to put forth the apostles, excuse me, to put the apostles forth a little space, so to remove the apostles from the area so that they could talk privately. And he said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up uh, Theudas, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain. And all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man arose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished. And all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. So Gamaliel exhorts in these verses that the counsel take a wait and see approach. Now, as I said, at this point, Jesus had already risen from the dead. But what Gamaliel is saying here is, if this is not of God, it will not, it, it will not continue. It will fizzle out. It will not come to pass. The Lord will not bless it. But if the Lord has blessed it, then you are going to be found fighting against God himself. And that is not going to go well for you. And this same idea, this same philosophy, this idea that throughout Jesus' ministry, he did these many wonderful things, but there might be these ones that say, yes, he's done these many wonderful things, but what about... 
Oh, what about the fact that others have done these things too? We've been talking, we have talked on Tuesday nights about a Christian spiritual authority. And we talked about the nature and relationship of, 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 of Christians to the spirit realm and the relationship of non-Christians to the spirit realm. And we find that some of these things uh, that happen that we would call um, uh, uh, unique or strange as it relates to interaction with the spirit realm. It's not only Christians that do that stuff. So what is it that sets Christians apart? In that same idea, what is it that set Christ apart? apart. If the work is of God, Gamaliel said, we can't resist it anyway. If the work is not of God, then soon enough it will be known and that work will come to naught and the followers will scatter. And because error and lies cannot last in the sunlight for long before they are exposed and invalidated, it'll go away. But if someone is of God, well, there's nothing that can stand against it because God is behind it. And it is that idea, it is that concept that we find as one of the most startling and effective proofs of the truth of Jesus Christ found by means of the resurrection. We know that God is sovereign, meaning that God is ultimately in control of all things. We know that nothing happens in this world outside of of God's control. Now, this doesn't mean that everything that happens, God wants to happen. We understand that we're in a fallen world, and because we're in a fallen world, and men have free will, that things happen that are outside of God's perfect will, but nothing happens outside of God's knowledge and control. God does allow everything to happen that happens, often as a natural consequences of the decisions we make, the way that he's built the world and designed it to be, the way that sin has perverted it, and he must allow sin for a season in order that men might come to repentance. We also know that God created the curse by which men live and grow and die. This was God's design based upon man's sin, the punishment. This was the curse. To this end, we know that anyone who raises from the dead only raises from the dead if God allows them to. All of those nine instances of the resurrection that we read outside of Christ happened because God placed his stamp of approval on the minister, the man of God, and so that man rose from the dead. Now imagine Jesus. Jesus was not just your typical prophet. Jesus took it a bit further. Jesus upped the ante. He didn't say, I am a prophet sent from God. He said, I am the son of God. He did not say... I am a representative. He said, I am God in flesh. And Jesus rose from the dead. Imagine if the Father was looking down from heaven upon the ministry of Jesus, and if there was disapproval there, if he looked upon it with disapproval, maybe he would still let that man do his false teaching, right? We've seen plenty of false teachers draw many, many people away, just as Gamaliel said of Judas of Galilee. They drew many people away. We've seen, we've seen false teachers come and go. We've got plenty of false teachers today and God is allowing them in his sovereign leniency and his sovereign will as, as we wait for the, the consummation of all things, God is allowing them to have their day. But that man, Jesus, he claimed something greater than all of the prophets. He claimed a connection with God, a power That was not just the power of a prophet, but the power of the Son of God. And imagine that somehow Jesus was able to do all of those mighty works through some power other than the Father. 
rather than the power of God, as the Pharisees accused him of in Matthew 12, saying that he did these great works uh, in in the name of Satan. And if all of these things, obviously all of these things are false, I'm giving a scenario here, if all of these things could possibly be reasoned to be true, that Jesus did all of these things in the power of somebody other than the Father, you'd still have a major problem when it comes to the resurrection. Because while we might believe that the Father would allow some false prophet to do these many mighty works, Jesus testifying in Matthew chapter 7 that there will be many that say unto him in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name do many wonderful works? And Jesus will reply to them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. That's possible. But it doesn't explain Jesus rising from the dead. If this man, Jesus, was a false prophet who in his day drew hundreds to this false doctrine, and who would, through his followers, see millions of people drawn over thousands of years into this doctrine. One thing we know for sure is this. God the Father would never have allowed Jesus to raise from the dead. If the resurrection has, throughout the scriptures, been a sure and a direct sign of the power of God himself, and if Jesus were a false teacher then God would never possibly allow him to be risen from the dead. And in this we find the great message of the resurrection. The message being that Jesus is and indeed he must be by every measure exactly who he claims to be. Jesus must be God in flesh. He must be God with us. He must be the only Savior. He must be the only way to the Father. Because in rising from the dead, the Father put his stamp of approval on the ministry of the Son. God said on the day he rose Jesus from the dead, everything that that man said during his life is true. Every man that, everything that that man said is going to happen is going to happen. And it's proof positive because I allowed him to come back from the dead. So yes, the power of the resurrection is the power of salvation. Yes, the power of the resurrection is our blessed hope. But the power of the resurrection is the validation. The empty tomb is the proof positive that Jesus' power, that Jesus' methods, that Jesus' message were of the Father. Because he's risen from the dead. And this proof was not lost on the disciples by any means. In Acts chapter 13, Paul had just traveled to Antioch in Pisidia. And he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he sat down. And after having read the law, Paul was given leave to speak to the people. And this is what he said to the people on that day. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 16. Then Paul stood up and beckoned with his hand, beckoning with his hand, excuse me, said, Men of Israel... And ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people, of Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel, the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of, in this case, it would be Kish, Kish in the Old Testament, Sis here, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, 
he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a savior, Jesus. Skipping to verse 28. And though they found no cause of death in him, speaking of Jesus still, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he, whom God raised again, saw no corruption. Paul is speaking naturally to a Jewish audience here in Acts chapter 13, and he is speaking of Christ and of the nature of Christ's ministry and then of his death and of his resurrection. And as Paul sought to appeal to the Old, Old Testament prophecies to prove the identity of Jesus as Messiah, it's interesting. He does not go to Isaiah 53 and speak of the suffering servant. He does not quote Joel 2 and speak about the realities of what happened on the day of Pentecost. Instead, the Bible says he quoted Psalm 2. Thou art my beloved son, this day have I begotten thee to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. Now, this is interesting. And if you don't have a King James Version, then you may or you may not have this in your Bible. Within the scope of the New Testament, many translations have taken out the idea of Jesus being the only begotten Son. Instead, they trains, tra change that translation to one and only Son. And this is a genuine attempt to try to curb or to try to mitigate what has been a common misinterpretation of the idea of Jesus being the only begotten son. The translator would say that this implies that Jesus was a created being, but we know that Jesus is not a created being. John 1 telling us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So we know that Jesus was there from the beginning. We know that he is not created, that he is the ever existent Lord and the ever-existent God, and yet they say, well, the only begotten Son gives a flavor that He was a created being, therefore we're going to change it to one and only Son. The problem is one and only Son actually completely ruins the meaning of the text. It completely subverts what it is that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Jesus says He's the only begotten Son because every single Jew knew what Psalm 2 was. Every single Jew knew that Psalm 2 was a messianic psalm. Every Jew knew that there would be a day when Messiah would come and that he would be begotten of the Father. Not that he would be created, but that this Messiah would receive the full power and authority of God to be the one who was the Savior, who was the Christ, to save Israel from their sins and to judge the nations. And it is this prophecy in Psalm 2 
that Paul points to in order to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't point to Isaiah 53 and and the suffering servant prophecy. He does not point to Joel 2 and the prophecy of Pentecost. He points to Psalm 2. And what is Psalm 2 talking about? Did you catch it in verse 33? Verses 32 and 33, let me read them again. Uh, Acts chapter 13. Paul says, And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, notice this, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second Psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The day of Jesus' resurrection, the Bible says, was the day that Jesus truly took on the title only begotten son of God. You say, well, pastor, Jesus said he was the only begotten son of God all the way back to John chapter three, all the way back to the beginning of his ministry. Yes, he did in the same way that Revelation says Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus already had the title only begotten son of God, but there's a day where he earned that title. There's a day where he came into the fullness of that inheritance. There's a day where uh, heaven and earth testified that Jesus is in fact the one who is the Son of God who gained by title the right to be the inheritor of the kingdom that the Father had given to him. And that day was the day of his resurrection. And the reality of that is, is, is rooted in the phrase, only begotten Son of God. I think it's a tragedy that that phrase has been taken out of our Bibles because out of modern translations, because in taking it out, it has severed the connection between Psalm 2 and that title. It has severed the connection between that title and the resurrection. And the resurrection was the day when that title was truly earned by our Savior. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He earned that title when God raised him from the dead. God raising him from the dead was, is the proof positive that he is the only begotten Son of God. And we know it. Because God allowed this man who claimed to be God in flesh, who claimed that he would raise again on the third day to raise again and that on the third day. God would never allow such such a thing to happen if Jesus was not who he said he was. The father would never allow an enemy, a false teacher, to validate his own message of God in such a way. Jesus raising from the dead was God's stamp of approval, made him the only begotten son of God. God did validate Jesus' ministry. God has given Jesus a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that because Jesus' message is from the Father. And if this were even at all obscure, if all of this to this point, and it's been a little bit of a scattered message, I probably could have organized it a little better, but if all of this to this point has been obscure, we find it stated quite plainly in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. And the times of this ignorance, Paul says, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men that in he hath raised him from the dead. We know that Jesus has authority to reign. We know that Jesus has authority to judge. And how is it that we know that Jesus has this authority? Because God raised him from the dead. So when my children sang this morning, he is risen. And when we sang this morning, he lives. Christ arose. Christ the Lord is risen today. We are declaring 
the life, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But do you know what else we're declaring? That Jesus has all power in heaven and earth to rule, to reign, and to judge. It's the unmistakable, irrefutable, historical reality. God has raised Jesus from the dead, has given all men assurance that the message of Jesus Christ, everything in that message, salvation and peace and joy and provision and holiness and empowerment, all the way to the very day of judgment itself, is absolutely true. And with that, we apply. I mentioned at the beginning of our time together three main lessons that we typically pull from the resurrection. That the resurrection is... uh, Today, we we, we considered the most obscure of these points, right? That third point. That the resurrection is proof positive. God the Father's stamp of approval upon the ministry and message of Jesus Christ. Proof positive that Jesus is God, that Jesus came from God, that Jesus did what he said he would do, that Jesus is going to do what he says he's going to do. But there were, as I mentioned, two other typical ways in which a resurrection message goes. And the first of those is that because Jesus lives, so too can we. As we think through all that we learned this morning, walking through the book of Acts, walking through John, Jesus testifying of himself, the apostles testifying of him. In this final statement here in Acts chapter 17, Paul warning that because of the resurrection from the dead, we can know one thing and one thing for sure, that he will judge the world in righteousness. And the question is, are you ready for that judgment? There's coming a day where every single one of us will stand before God in judgment. And on that day, there is one of two results that will take place. Either you will be declared not guilty and you will enter into the joy of heaven or you will be declared guilty and you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. There is no in-between. It is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. And the question is, on that day, when you stand before that great judge and you know you will, we sang this morning three hymns testifying to the reality that you will. We, we, we read this morning a record that you will. You will stand before that judge. He's been given all power in heaven and earth. And when you stand before that judge on that day, what will you hear? Well, thank God as it relates to the gospel, What we hear on that day is not conditioned upon us. The Bible says that we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That there is none righteous, no, not one. That there is none that doeth good. That there is none that seeketh after God. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You have sinned, I have sinned, and we are all separated from God because of that sin. And there's nothing that I can do to undo that. I am guilty already. I am already condemned. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth, uh, he that believeth is, is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, John 3.18 says, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We're all condemned already because we have fallen short through sin. You say, well, I'll just work harder. Well, you can work harder, but number one, you're still going to sin. Number two, you're already guilty. You've already sinned. Well, I'll just pay for it. That's right, you will. But the judge gets to make the sentence, and the sentence is, the Bible says, death, eternal separation from God in a place of conscious torment called the lake of fire. And that's bad news. But fortunately, that bad news gives way to good news. That's why Jesus came. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What you cannot do for yourself, you can't earn your way to God, you can't work your way to God. And I say this not to be judgmental or to, to, to be self-righteous this morning, but there are people in churches all around this nation that are in those churches this morning in hopes that by being in church today, God will let them into heaven. There's no amount of going to church that will get you into heaven. There's no amount of giving to a church that will get you into heaven. No baptism will get you into heaven. No spiritual conference of blessing from some holy man will get you into heaven. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son Jesus Christ to live a perfect life but die a sinner's death. And in doing so, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that the father made his son Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That God would take our, righteous, our unrighteousness and he would punish Jesus for that unrighteousness so that our payment... The payment for our sin is made in Christ. Jesus died for you. Jesus took that payment for you. And in that he took that payment for you, it is now paid. The offense between you and the Father is paid. And that frees Jesus up to offer you eternal life. But as with any gift, it has to be accepted. As with any gift, Jesus paid the price for that gift. Jesus purchased it on the cross for you. But if you do not accept it, it will not be yours. And this idea of accepting that gift is what the Bible calls belief. Belief is not just mental assent. It's not just me saying in my mind something is true. Belief, faith, is when what I know actually becomes what I believe and so affects what I do. So that I see that Jesus did this thing for me, I accept that Jesus did this thing for me, and then I repent of or I set aside anything and everything I might otherwise be trusting in to make myself right with God, to get myself to heaven, and I commit my life to Jesus Christ alone to be the only thing that can save me from my sins, forgive me of those sins, and get me to heaven. And if you will do that this morning, if you will put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you've not done that, would you make today the day? So we know that Jesus is approved of the Father. We spent most of the message talking about that. There's no reason for us not to believe what Jesus has said. And what Jesus has said is that we come to the Father through him. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But there is that one final application. I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too today. I'm, getting, I'm, I'm, I'm hammering them all today. One final application. Most of you here today are believers. And you sit and you listen to a resurrection message in the gospel, and it's good. We all need to hear the gospel. The gospel is important in the ears of the believer just as it's important in the ears of the unbeliever because it is this thing that motivates us. It is this thing that compels us. It is the remembrance of what we have in Christ, the remembrance of his grace, the remembrance of his mercy that compels us so that we can say, as we read in 1 John 4, we love him because he first loved us. It is Jesus' work on the cross that compels us to forgive. It is Jesus' work on the cross that compels us unto long suffering. It is Jesus' work on the cross that compels us unto generosity so that the gospel is lost on no ears that heard it this morning. But... The gospel doesn't end at believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The gospel is much, much more than that. Christian, Jesus did not just overcome death, he overcame sin. Perhaps you are a believer, but you're halting between two opinions this morning. 
You're attempting to live with one foot in the world and one foot in Christ and you're tired and you're frustrated. You are, by all estimations, one of the most miserable people in the world if that's you today. You know the old saying, if you try to please everyone, you end up pleasing no one? If you try to live one foot in the world and one foot in Christ, you just end up divided. The word in the scriptures is double-minded. And then you end up being carried with the wind and tossed by winds of doctrine, by the, the deceits of men that lie in wait to deceive. And you find your, you'll find yourself in a place where you're attempting to live out the power of God in your life, but you don't have that power because you are grieving the Spirit of God. Not a good place to be. And perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you're in that place today. Christ's resurrection calls you not just to accept the salvation by grace through faith, but to live in the newness of life which Christ purchased on the cross. Because it is not only that He is risen, but it is that you are risen in Christ. That when you accepted Christ as your Savior, that death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was imputed to you, buried with Him by baptism into death, Romans chapter 6, verse 3 says, raised to walk in newness of life. We find perhaps the best description of this in Colossians 3. And primarily, I'm just going to let the Scripture speak for itself here. I'm not going to expound on this much. But in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, we read this. If ye then be risen with Christ, that's the premise. If, if you are one of the, the, the ones here today who has accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, who is thus buried with Him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life, if you are risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. He's coming for you, and you'll be with him one day. What does that mean for you? That means this, verse 5. Mortify, kill, destroy, put to death. Therefore, your members which are upon the earth, not your hands and your feet, the members that he's about to talk about. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things, Paul says, for which things sake, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Now, you're not a child of disobedience. You will not see that wrath. So why live in that manner? You are not anymore that one who is dead in their trespasses and sins. So why are you still living in the sin? Come out from that. That's not for you. That is not who you are. You are living in contradiction to who Christ created you to be as you're living in that place. Verse 7, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. There was a time where you lived in that. There was a time where you were that. But now, Christian, ye also put off these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. The image of Christ. 
You've been created anew in the image of Christ, Christian. Live like it. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, nor circumcision, barbarian, or uh, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are, you were ushered into the elect, the church of Jesus Christ. And if you are the elect of God, put on then, what? Put off the old man. Put off the anger and the malice and the fornication, the uncleanness and the filthy communication. Put all that off because that's not you anymore. You know, the unbeliever can't put that stuff off. They can discipline their flesh, but they can't put that stuff off. That's who they are. But if you are in Christ, you can. You have been created anew. You have been created a new man, so put on the new man. Put on bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Verse 14, and above all these things, put on charity which is the bond of perfectness. Christian, if that does not sound like you today, if the list that we, I just read in Colossians chapter 3 is not you today, then you do have some work to do on this Resurrection Sunday. It's not a call to perfection in the sense of sinlessness. It's a call to perfection in the sense of completeness. Live in the person that Christ made you to be. This is the call into which the resurrection calls us. Remember how we began in Colossians 3. If ye then be risen with Christ. Again, not sinless perfection. That will come when we experience our bodily resurrection one day. That's the day that we get to look forward to sinless perfection. That's the day where we'll put off this mortality and we will put on immortality. And that's going to be a good day. But for today, live in the power of that resurrection. The power of that resurrection is just as much for you today as it is on the day that Christ takes us home. Live separated from the sin of the world that is around us. Live free from the guilt and shame of sin's consequences. And instead, live a life submitted to the power of God, the work of God in us unto righteousness by means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And maybe it is that on this Resurrection Sunday, you have lost focus for one reason or another. Happens to all of us. Maybe you've gotten lazy, distracted, But maybe the reminder today of the power of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ can call you back to that thriving, growing, sanctified life that you are intended to be living in Christ. Whatever the case, it's the time of year when we think about new growth, right? Snow is finally melting. Trees will begin to bud here soon. The lakes will soon have open water, hopefully. Weather It's turning nice. We're thinking about new things. Spring is that time of renewal. And may we live into that season as well. Be renewed in our own lives. In the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, because we know that Jesus rose from the dead. We know it. And we know what that means. That the Father has placed a stamp of approval on Jesus' ministry. We know that he was approved of God. We know that what Jesus said to be true is true. 
And so may what we know become what we believe and thus affect what we do this morning. May we direct all of our affections into living in consistency with this new man that was born in Christ when we were raised to walk in newness of life. Putting off the old man. Putting on the new man. Pastor, it's too difficult. Pastor, you don't understand my circumstances. Perhaps I don't. And maybe there's something that you do need help with. And if you need help navigating through something, I encourage you, come talk to me. We'll get you the help you need. But I also do know this. It may be too difficult for you. I may not understand what you're going through. But nothing that God has placed into your path, nothing that God has directed in your life, nothing that you face today is out, is, requires more of God's supernatural power than what was required to raise Jesus from the dead. And what God affected through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that power that raised him from the dead is the same power that is in you. Not in a mystical sort of a sense. Not that you can tap into that power at will unto your own ends. Not that you are some sort of spiritual wizard. But rather that God's capacity to help you be the person that he has born you to be. That he has created you in Christ to be. Whatever difficulty you're facing related to the power of sin or the sorrow of past the sorrow of consequences of your past, the pain of your past, the way people dealt with you, the unforgiveness, the bitterness, the resentment, the fear, the anxiety, the frustration, the sorrow, the hardness of human hearts. God's word and God's way is certainly up to the challenge. And we know that because of the power of the resurrection. We know that because that is the kind of power that God has to deliver us from sin. And we know that because he did it. If only we will seek those things that are above where Christ liveth, sitteth on the right hand of God. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's always an enjoyable process. But on the authority of God's word, it is a blessed process. And it is the only place, Christian, where God's blessing is found. The place where God can meet you and he can take you from where you are to where he has created you to be. See, because you don't need to have that power in yourself. It doesn't take self-actualization. It doesn't take self-discipline in that sense. What it takes is submission to the power of God so that he can do in you what the power of the resurrection has promised to do in you. If you will set your affection on things above, if you will mortify those deeds that are upon the earth, if you will put off the old man and put on the new, if you will step into, live into, lean into the newness of life that you were born into when you accepted Christ as your Savior. On the authority of God's word, if you will allow him to do this work in you, he will. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.